You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Welcome to the podcast. I happen to be taping this on Super Tuesday, just a few days ago, as it were, and very excited because Joe Lockhart is my guest today. He, as you know, was Bill Clinton's press secretary and also represented the NFL and Facebook and had his own lobbying firm. He is the host of a wonderful podcast called Words Matter. He's a contributor to CNN. Hi, Joe. Hi, glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here, but we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this election season. Don't go away. Joe Lockhart, you were President Clinton's press secretary during his last most difficult two years. That could not have been fun being the press secretary during an impeachment. I never used the word fun, um, but I love doing it. I described the job once as the best job I'm ever going to have that I can't wait till it's over. <laughs> um, yeah. And because there was a sense of stress and anxiety and so much going on and uh, so much responsibility or so much responsibility I felt, um, uh, you know, as sort of the keeper of uh, sanity, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in the White House, or one of the keepers. Uh, but I've never had anything since that 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 where you felt like you had that much impact every day, every hour. You can't do it forever. I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that it was over. Uh, but nothing, you know, uh, gets anywhere near uh, the kind of experience you have when you're right in the middle of that stuff. I mean. When you walk into the Oval Office, and that is basically your workplace, that's pretty intense. Yeah, you get, and in one sense, you never get used to it. You know, you have the experience of driving into the White House, you know, through uh, through the gates. You drive your car, and it's not the same as driving into a parking garage. It's just not. Yeah, I would and, think And not. walking into the Oval isn't, isn't um, something that feels particularly normal, but you do get used to it, and you do get caught up. Um, in the moment and, you know, forget that you're in, you know, an iconic location in American history where, you know, more things than you could possibly even imagine have happened. When I went in to interview for the job, you know, I was nervous. I had never been in the Oval Office before. I had met Bill Clinton 10, 15 years earlier, but, you know, it, it was a two-minute conversation and not uh, not something that he'd remember, and I remembered it because he was, the, you know, the governor of Arkansas. And I wasn't sure what to say. I wasn't sure what to do. And because it's Bill Clinton, it was no problem at all because he talked and I listened. Uh, (laughs) And he had a very particular idea of what he wanted done and why he thought I could do it. And he told me about it for a half an hour. And at the end of it, he said, so what do you think? And I was like... Uh, yeah, sure. That's that's great. It was like you good were talk. Swept away by yeah. Prince Charming. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, in the old days, prior to 2016, the role of a press secretary was completely different from the role of the Trump press secretary or whatever we have there who doesn't talk right. to press. One of the jobs was to help the chief executive to send his message out. But one was really to 
ensure that the American people knew what was happening. I mean, now, under this regime, there is no such thing as as a press conference, really. I mean, they, they're pressers while he's running to his helicopter. But what do you make of their treatment of the press or their abuse of the press? Well, as you might imagine, I have a lot to say about this, so I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, I, you know, the, the job as I did, it doesn't exist any longer. They've killed it. Uh, and I hope it revives uh, in starting next January uh, with um, whether it's Senator Warren, Joe Biden, Mike Bloomberg or Bernie Sanders, that they understand how important it is. You know, the, the job is multifaceted. You see the briefing, but there's much more to it. You have to keep the president prepared. Uh, the president has no ability to figure out what the press is interested in and marry that up with the million policies that's going on. And the press secretary and his her staff has to help him think that through. So anytime he would go out in public, I would spend 10 minutes with him saying, you know, this, this is what they're going to yell at you. Or if you want to take questions, well, I would say to him, let's not take questions today because the speech is important. He'd say, Got it, got it. And then, of course, he'd take questions. Right. So we, we, you know, we got him ready. We did that little charade beforehand, uh-huh. which he enjoyed for some reason. Um, that's a piece of it. The one that you mentioned is critically important. The, the press is the proxy for the public. And the public, you know, they don't sit around wondering what the press secretary or the president is doing every day. But it, on days that they do, at 1 o'clock every day, you could tune in. And even if the press secretary didn't give you a lot of information, you knew what was important by what the reporters asked. And that's really gone away that you you just don't, you know, you don't have this sort of going around the world of, you know, what's going on in, in India, India, Pakistan, or what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Cyprus. You know, it's the things that um, are important to our national security and to the country. But it's all, you know, you don't have that sort of forum um, uh, any longer. Well, it was so noticeable, especially when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was press secretary, her contempt for the press. One of the things that I have enjoyed as a, let's say, active citizen is seeing the collegial relationship between your old position and the reporters who cover the White House, even if it's just, you know, who is the president rooting for this Sunday at the game, even if it's just a joke about a horoscope, whatever it is, there is something magical about that fabric that connected the press corps and the White House. There were times when you were feuding with lots of people in the room and times you were getting along. It wasn't personal. One of the important parts of the job was to every day remind yourself, this isn't about me. Mm-hmm. People, I'm a functionary for the press because I get to talk to the president two or three times a day and they don't. Right. Uh, you fall into a very bad place when you start thinking that they're interested in what I think. Uh, they're not. And right. they shouldn't be. Right. Uh, and that's a, that's, um, that's a big part of it. The last thing on why the, the press briefing is important is it does force a discipline on decision-making in the White House. <clears throat> it's a very, so very simple, you know, in any business, in any organization, if you give someone three days to decide, they'll take three days plus or you know, five days one day. The briefing every day at 1 o'clock um, had a, you know, magical impact on It policy. was a deadline. It was a deadline. And I can't remember how many times I'd see, you know, two people trying to figure out or two groups 
a policy and not getting it done. And I'd say, well, are you guys willing to toss a coin or leave it up to me? Because at one o'clock, I'm not going out for a second straight day saying we haven't decided yet. And that would force, you know, this a, 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 a process that worked in a timely way. And you look at this White House now, and that's the biggest, you know, you put the corruption aside and the lying aside and the narcissism aside and, you the know, the, ignorance the character issues and the character. aside. They have no system for governing. They have no, you know, one of the things that um, you have seen in previous administrations when you have something like the coronavirus coming is you've got this very robust interagency process where all the experts from various places come together. Two months ago, we knew about this virus. They set up a task, you know, they, the group dealing with it a couple of days ago. Uh, they, they have not cared about governing, and now it's coming back to bite them. They have not cared about telling the truth, and now that's coming out to bite them. They haven't them, cared about them. people. No, and, they, and the president, you know, the president looks at the coronavirus as a plot to keep him from a second term. I know. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's blamed the Democrats. He will eventually blame his own people and throw them under the bus. But he, you know, he, he, he couldn't even get the gender of the person, the first person who died right. right. That's mm-hmm. how little he cared about connecting with uh, any of the information. Now, someone said to him, like, let me tell you a little bit about this person. He wasn't listening because he doesn't care. It just it doesn't register that anything beyond what works for him means anything at the moment. At the moment, right? Because his attention span is not is not too well developed, or something, or it's the Adderall, or whatever it is. I mean, it's not. He's not like any person you or I know. Well, he doesn't. Um, he doesn't need to retain facts. Because he listens for things that um, match what he thinks, and then he twists them in a way where it's whatever he decided, you know, his position was at the beginning before he had any facts. So you're right. never you're never going to see him say, "Well, there's three reasons," and then forget the third, because the his reason is I'm Donald Trump, and and I'm smarter than all the experts, so whatever I say is right. Which is is it's not amazing. right. It's not, not right. right. Yeah, we 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 figured that out early on. I mean, as a New Yorker and as a journalist, I had interviewed Donald Trump years ago. I never thought this was a serious. I mean, it's pointless to say at this at this moment, but none of us thought this was a serious bid to be the president. And once he was elected, nobody thought it would be such a malignancy on the democracy. We all thought he'd be playing golf and not caring, but he's really dismantled the government in a very profound way. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Joe, was what made the Republicans, in your opinion, fall for this? How did they sort of kick Ronald Reagan, their idol, to the curb so quickly to fall in line with, with this crooked man? That It's a very good question. I'll try to answer it. I think the Republican Party, as we know it, the party of Reagan, um, uh, the party of Lincoln going all the way back, has been uh, slowly marching itself towards extinction. Social and demographic changes in this country has made this country a much more socially liberal a progressive nation uh, politically. The Republican Party really 
it started with Newt Gingrich, but really took hold in 2010 with the Tea Party. We're faced with this existential crisis. Do we do we uh, evolve to become a more progressive uh, party to match where the country is, or do we turn inward and try to consolidate power around the most conservative elements? And they took that. They took the former route. Um, excuse me. They took the latter route. The latter route, and, yeah. And they became this reactionary right-wing party where no dissent was uh, allowed. And that party was marching towards extinction. And Donald Trump came along and he provided them a lifeline to a whole new set of voters, disaffected, working class. You know, they're not Reagan Democrats. Um, it's, it's, it's a different group, but it was the, they became the party of grievance, the party of the, the Howard Beale. I'm mad as yes. hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Oh, I like the way you say that. Yeah. A man in a golden palace wakes up pissed off every day. Yeah. And you yeah. know, because, you know, it, it's everything's being rigged. Everything's trying to keep things away from me. And he's tapped into something that Bernie Sanders has tapped into also, but all on the left, which is the system is set up to screw you. Now, Bernie Sanders, uh, I think uh, some of what he says, I agree with this. The system does not promote the middle and the lower middle class, the working class. Donald Trump took advantage of everything you could that does rig the system against those people and then turned around like the demagogue he is and said, I, you know, only I can fix this for you. And I think the uh, the Republicans are driven not so much by a fixed ideology anymore, but this passion to have power and to just hold on to it at any cost. And Trump provided them a lifeline, and and they have sold their soul. There's no doubt about it. And what happens on the other end when Trump isn't there is um, uh, fascinating. I, I I think the Republican Party is dead. It will take another few cycles to prove that. And my guess is in 20 years we will have a two-party system, but it will be the Joe Biden Democratic Party and the Bernie Sanders uh, AOC Democratic Socialist Party. They mm. may call it something different. They may mm-hmm. want to brand it something different. But you know, as all of these changes happen, it's going to be increasingly difficult to keep the Democratic Party uh, together. And I think it will. You know, and by the way, this is all good news. Yes, well, I, I'm much be. happier about a government where. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are fighting about what's are the, the right policies. Are the, are the right. two polars yeah. than having Kevin McCarthy and Doug Collins and Jim Jordan and some of the dumbest human beings yes. that you're ever going to come across. Yes. And corrupt. Who, corrupt, but but they're the leadership. Right, they are. That, that's the definition of a, um, whether it's a civilization, whether it's a political party of an organization that has already died, but doesn't know it yet when you have the least capable people running it because what they're good at is grabbing power and holding on to it. Let's talk about Mike Bloomberg as kind of the a, a mascot of what's happening right now. He hinted at running for president before. He hinted that he wouldn't run unless he knew he could win. Then he entered the race late, very late, and uh, although one could say he entered when it sh- when the primary should have begun anyway, this this takes too long and is too divisive a process. And will he be the hero, or will he be the spoiler, or will he be the spoiler who is the hero? 
Wow. Let me yeah. let me unravel yeah. that in my head. Yeah. Listen, I I I I don't know Mayor Bloomberg uh, well. I've met him a few times, but I know a lot of his people very well. They are all very very smart. They are all very devoted uh, uh, to Bloomberg and devoted for good reasons. He, you know, Republicans have this. Um, uh, philosophy of take care of your political people, stuff them in this corporation or stuff them there. Democrats don't really have that. You <laughs> yeah. leave and you got to go find something, and you know, what you got to Bloom- go to Georgetown. Yeah, yeah, what 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 Bloomberg did was he brought in the best political talent that he and who he used in his campaigns and said, "I'm going to find you a place here. I'm going to pay you a premium, and we're going to, in addition to running this big business here, this information technology business, we're going to do good things." And he has done good things. Um, he has done more on guns than anyone. Uh, than anyone. Yeah. I mean, I, I can make an argument that what Mark Kelly and Gabby Giffords do emotionally yes. connects more. Uh, but in terms of resources and going in and funding these state campaigns, no one's done more. He's done more on climate change than any uh, business person or you know direct philanthropist has mm-hmm. done. I mean, you look at you know Bill Gates will write a check for. $100 million to this or $500 million to that. Um, but they're not doing it in the public way where you're trying to push the political process along. And he gets great credit for that. You know, and he's done, you know, lots of good things. I believe that he got into the race for the right reason. Um, he thought that uh, Biden didn't have what it what it took and was going to collapse his campaign was going to collapse. There was plenty of uh, data that supported that. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't made up. Until last week. Yeah. And I think what bought what has bought for me um, an acceptance of Bloomberg's role, uh, because I don't think I'd vote for him because uh, he's, he's too conservative for my taste. But his um, uh, laying out his commitment to being in this campaign, whether he's in it or not, has made a real difference. He's put together a 3,000-person staff. They're mm-hmm. all paid through November. I heard. Guaranteed. And on the ground everywhere. Yes, they're there everywhere. And, you know, I love them because all the people that I used to work with who can't get a job with, you know, because they're too old, he hired them all. Uh, so that's full great. employment for my friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's committed to spending, you know, very large amounts of money to take Donald Trump out. Now, here's the caveat to all of this. Um, you know, South Carolina has changed the dynamic in some ways. Let's wait and see how Biden does. I, I love Joe Biden. I have always wanted him to run away with this. But when he didn't run away with it, I was at the point where a couple of people who have dropped out might have gotten my vote over Joe Biden. It's just, you know, it, I was waiting. We're in New York. We're at the end. We we didn't have to decide. Um, but uh he, when you run for president and you're out there and you've got people cheering for you and everyone's paying attention and cameras are following you, you do get the bug. Yes. And I worry that it's now becoming about him and not the original goal of let's defeat Donald right, Trump. Right, right. So let's see what happens right. um, uh, on Super Tuesday. And, you know, there's a chance that um, if he does very poorly, he could be out of the race this week. There have been a lot of surprises this week. I mean, yeah, we did not expect um, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg to fold before well, Super Tuesday, did we? we? Not Buttigieg. He was he had real numbers. Well, um, you know, the answer is yes and no. I, I, 
um, I've I've worked on five presidential campaigns. I've watched five others where I was kind of informally talking to them. I I watch this because I it's what I like to watch. It's, yeah, you know, some people like movies on Netflix or all these movies. All <laughs> what these, are you a freak? Yeah, all of these great shows that everyone keeps talking about. I'm like, wait, that wasn't on CNN with Wolf Witzer. But um, uh, the Saturday at eight or nine o'clock to Monday night at midnight, more happened in that 48 hours than I've ever seen in a a campaign. Now, I've seen campaigns where people had to drop out. Right. You know, I've seen campaigns that have fallen apart or campaigns that have had great debates and it's sort of a... Or Gary Hart with Donna, whatever. This basically um, turned the race on its head. Yeah. And, you know, it's the only, the, the, my only two words of caution, and it's, you know, it's anecdotal, but, you know, one is I had to, like, send, put something on Twitter to, like, all of my friends, you know, and all the Biden supporters saying, hey, you know, we got an election to win here. Stop trying to fill out his cabinet because he got, you know, 48% in South Carolina. Right. But it, it didn't stop anybody. They kept, they, they kept doing it. Secondly, I, you know, was I was... I was on my high horse for several weeks that Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada don't tell you that much. They tell you interesting uh, but anecdotal pieces of information. They don't tell you what the Democratic Party, the base, the real base, not the Bernie Sanders voters. They are a niche in the party, an important one, but it's not the base. The base is African-American, African-American women, young people, Latinos, suburban women, these are these are the people that make up that you know vote regularly and are the Democratic Party. There was very little about those first three contests that told us where our base was. South Carolina didn't decide the election. No, they basically you know revived Joe Biden in one fell swoop, but we still have a contest on our hands. Mm-hmm. And you know I, I'm not a um, I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders because I think some of his views are extreme, and I think he'll lose to Donald Trump. I have yet to see him in a Democratic, you know, in a, in a state that represents where the Democrats are, get more than 25 to 28 percent of the vote. I think there's a ceiling there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he can always pick up you know, a little bit more if it looks like. And will the party rally around him if he wins? Of course they will. Uh, if he doesn't win, will young people vote for the candidate? Well, that's that, that's, that's a big question. That's the question. Yeah. And, you know, I think people will wonder why did it take so long for the field to sort itself out? And I think a big reason was um, people wanted to be president who were in the race, but they knew to be president. Uh, it was very likely they were going to have to bring the Sanders voters along. And I think everybody kept waiting for Bernie to, and I think a lot of people thought that maybe Elizabeth Warren would slay him. And it was never going to happen. Um, and I think post-Nevada, really post-New Hampshire, you know, everybody woke up, or a lot of people. I mean, no, there's no one person or one group that speaks for Democrats. But a lot of people woke up and said, if we don't do something, Bernie's going to win. Uh, and that, in a lot of people's view, um, uh, makes uh, November potentially a disaster for Democrats, both at the presidential level and down the ballot. Um, and you had a sudden change in everyone's strategy. 
You said uh, Elizabeth Warren was never going to be the nominee. Uh, it did seem to me when Hillary Clinton lost, uh, well, she won the popular vote, but when she lost the election, uh, the one message I took away from it was they don't want a woman. She was clearly the most capable candidate who had come around for years and years, and inexplicably, but explicably, between the Russian intervention and maybe James Comey. But really, to me, there was misogyny at play. Do you think that's what's happened here, too? It does seem like Elizabeth Warren, I've seen her read as unlikable. I also see her as very likable and energetic. Yeah, Yeah, I I think no one really knows for sure uh, what's happened to Elizabeth Warren. And you know what? When a race can turn upside down in two days, it can turn upside down again and probably will. And that's the reason she's staying in. You know, if you look at, there are some people in the party saying that she should get out, you know, because that will, you want to clear the way to have Biden and Sanders go one-on-one. If you're Buttigieg or Klobuchar, who have a future in the party, they made their calculation. There was no way they were going to win. And what they want is they would like Biden to win, and they want to be set up uh, either to work in the administration or, more likely, for the next time there's a presidential uh, campaign. And they've done what is in the party's interest, what it's in their own interest. And if those diverged, they probably do what's in their own interest. That's 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 the name of the game. Elizabeth Warren has a totally different calculus. Uh, She's in her 70s. It's not likely, you know, she'll run again. She might. I mean, there's no reason why she can't. If men can run at 77 and women have life expectancies well beyond men, of course she can. Yes. But I think she views this as this is her shot. And she understands that there's a dynamic in this race that is still forming and she has a chance. And there should be a woman in the race. You know, why should we have a bunch of white men right. on the stage? Now, why did she go from the darling of the party to um, third and fourth place? That's a little harder to figure out. There is sexism and misogyny in this. I don't know how to measure that, though, in, you know, with data. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there is a there are just two different standards that um, the world holds politicians. And that's not just men. You know, it's women and men. Yes. Um, you know, 52% of white women voted for Donald Trump in 2016. So I'm not taking as a gender all of this on myself. There's, there's, you know, there's, everybody has to change. I mean, men should lead it, um, uh, but we've got to get men and women to change uh, their minds. Um, do you think, Joe Lockhart, that flipping the Senate in 2020 is a good enough consolation prize, and if we, God forbid, lose the presidency, and follow-up question, can that happen? Not likely. Um, And I think if we lose the presidency, depending on who our nominee is, um, the bigger question for me was, do we retain the House? And it'd be an absolute disaster to lose the House and lose whatever oversight and, you know, the courts have decided that they're not going to protect the oversight yeah, um, well. prerogative of the House. But we are the Democrats are at least able to at times hold the president's feet to the fire. All of that pales, though. And this is what this election comes down to. Donald Trump is such a clear and present danger to our democracy that uh, that's really what matters. Yes. We can live with the Senate 
with Republicans for another couple of years. We could even live with the, the House flipping back. Nobody wants that. I don't think anyone's predicting that right now. Uh, but this is, you know, they always we always talk about this presidential campaign is the most important one yes, in our lifetime. Right. And most of the time, you you know, you walk off the podium and say, I wonder if they bought that. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. this is it. Um, I mean, 2016 could have been historic, but it never felt historic. It didn't there for whatever reason. Um, it didn't feel like day to day during the campaign that the, the glass ceiling was being shattered, you know, in a dramatic way. Now, I think if Hillary had won, we would have talked our way, you know, you know, retroactively, retroactively uh, yeah. into that. But this, you know, 2020 is just a um, it's a referendum on uh, democracy. It's a referendum on how we who we are as a country uh, and. Uh, you know, are we a country that believes that uh, a president has ultimate power and is not a president but is a dictator who's someone who can do whatever he wants, line his own pockets, lie, steal, cheat, all of these things? Or, you know, are we a country that believes that the people should have a say and the people should decide and the democracy is, you know, something worth fighting for? You know, there's um, you can say that. All those things are important, but if you don't get out and vote, then they're not that important. And if people don't get out and vote and Trump wins again, he'll know it's not that important. And I, you know, the the idea that, you know, we can just wait four more years until he's out, that's silly. He's not leaving. He's not leaving. He's going he's gonna to leave in a box, you know, at whatever time he decides to leave this earth and, you know, as someone said, probably head south. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, his, you know, his enablers, his toadies, will probably try to get him a third term if they're still... Well, I don't know that we'll even have an election. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, what's, it's... The, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Well, last question before we get to your five things, mm-hmm. and that is the presidential endorsement. I know it's important. I know that it's fraught for Obama, but what about Clinton? What about Carter? Does it make sense for any of them to give their nod now? Well, I, I, you have to. I, I would look at them separately. I think you know Jimmy Carter represents a particular point of view of uh, engaging in the world, humanitarian aid, uh, promoting and protecting democracy around the world. And I think if he looked at the field and decided that among the four that are in that Mike Bloomberg was the person who fit, I don't think anyone would begrudge him coming Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, anything Bill Clinton does is a little fraught with peril because, um, you know, there's he's just a lightning rod. Um, And uh, but again, I, I mean, if listen, if if he's had a long relationship with Joe Biden, um, I don't think that it, the relationship is as close as with Bernie Sanders. Um, if he decided to get in now, I, I don't. Again, I don't think the party would revolt. I'm not sure um, it would have a huge impact. Um, uh, and I think if he wants to have a huge impact, which I'm sure he does, he has strong views on this, that he would want to wait. Uh, and I think he will wait. I don't have any reason to believe he's yeah. readying for that. Obama is a, as the last past president, is in the most unique position. Um, and I think a, I think particularly during um, the two weeks post-New Hampshire, 
there was a lot of pressure for him to get in and personally stop the Bernie stuff. Um, first off, he can't personally stop. Right, you know? right. It is a movement. I don't, I don't begrudge what Sanders has done. I also um, uh, applaud the fact that by staking out positions that are so far left, he has moved positions in the party that before had been unthinkable that we should have been doing. Right. Into, you know, it's like I, I tell people, um, who would have thought four years ago that, you know, the public option with, you know, uh, of you know, anyone being able to get Medicare was the moderate position. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, when Obama tried to do this, he was told, you know, go sit in the corner. You yeah. don't understand how this works. So there's a lot of good things that that uh, come out of Sanders. I think um, uh, Obama and my guess is, you know, uh, uh, there'll be some consultation between the two former presidents uh, about how they do this. But Obama needs to wait uh, until it has the most impact. And that's likely just before the convention, at the convention, maybe after the convention if there are hard feelings. Right. Because what makes up the Democratic base, the really you know reliable people who frankly stayed home last time or enough of them stayed home um, – they need, they need to be told, you know, that I bless, you know. And Michelle this Obama, I think, is going to be very valuable. No, I, I, absolutely. And I, you know, uh, they, they, uh, they did campaign uh, last time um, for whatever reason. Uh, it didn't have the impact that it, it it might have. I think there was a lot of um, there were parts of the Democratic base who were not. Enthused uh, about Hillary, and I think, but more importantly, they thought she was going to win. So you know, and you get seventy-seven thousand votes spread over three states, and that's the difference. Uh, I don't think there's anyone who thinks their vote doesn't matter this time on either side. I think you're going to see record turnout on on both sides. Uh, so I think the calculation for um, Obama is to wait as long as he can. Because the worst thing he could do is, say, endorse Joe Biden, his former vice president, and have Joe Biden self-combust or just not perform well. And all of a sudden, you know, it's Sanders versus Bloomberg. And if the president has a view, he can't he can't keep jumping back in. Right. So I think you only get to to do this once. Yeah. You only get to sort of lay hands uh, once. And uh, I, I think that's right. And. And I do think he's, um, you know, you say conflicted, and that sounds bad. Uh, I think he's conflicted, but it's not bad. He, I think he believes, and from what I've heard, there were a bunch of really interesting candidates out there, and he spent a good bit of time with all of them. Oh, and, did he? Um, uh, you know, talking on the phone and meeting with them. But, you know, I've heard that, you know, Buttigieg made a, a big impression on him. He's known Amy Klobuchar for a while. Deval Patrick is a, those, a you know, very close, close of personal his. friend of his. And Biden's, you know, people talked about them being like brothers in the White House. That's silly. I think Biden was was the president's crazy uncle, <laughs> who he loves. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, you know, who I think he looks at him objectively. Like, boy, he, you know, he had like four weeks in that campaign. He wasn't doing that well. I'm not going to get out there and push him if he can't do it. Um, and we're going to find out whether he can do it. Mm-hmm. So it was... Um, you know, in some ways, an embarrassment of riches because yeah. there were so many people that he had relationships with, 
And so for all of those reasons, um, he was I don't think he was ever going to get involved now before Super Tuesday. Um, he may get involved just before the convention, depending on how that's going. Uh, and again, everybody should remember there are limits to um, uh, the power of endorsements, even from someone like Barack Obama. Uh, people you know, can figure out what they want to do when they want to do it. My guess is that when we look back on this campaign, the 48 hours after South Carolina may be more significant as far as endorsements because did not not only did the field winnow, the field came, came together right. behind a particular candidate right. in a very vocal public way uh, and sent a strong message to the party that this is the person we think. Now, one of two things is going to happen. The party is going to elect that per- nominate that person or the party's going to say screw you. We, we don't we don't you're not going to tell us what to do and they'll get behind Sanders. Mm-hmm. And that's all still to be played out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't know and uh, I mean I have what I think should happen and what I'd like to happen, but I'm not going to tell you I know what's going to happen because because nobody does. Nobody knows anything. As Which is great. <laughs> Yes. Which is, which is Makes great. Makes it exciting. Well, Joe, we could have talked for another hour, and I know that my engineer would have been very happy about that, but it's time to hear your five things yes. because, you know, this is also how we how we coalesce our party. It's It's our party coming together from both sides, and it makes people happy to know that People like you, who they've admired in the public eye for years, have the same ideas of what makes them happy. So your number one thing that makes your life better. Well, I, I think a lot of people, this is normal, but it's my family. Um, and I have, a, I have a kind of unique family. Um, I'm 60 years old. I have a 25-year-old daughter um, who... Um, managed to stay out of the family business and <laughs> worked in theater and was very happy doing it. And then Donald Trump came around and all of a sudden now all she wants to do is go out as the young one, my five-year-old, and I'll get to the five-year-old. Um, I, I'm sorry, the younger one, the three-and-a-half-year-old, said very loudly on the subway the other day, um, that's my sister. She's getting rid of Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that's her job. That's uh, her job. So she's she's in the middle of all this trying to, uh, and, and you know, I, I hope has the bug because I think this is all, and we'll get to this on my list, uh, uh, I think it's important. And I think the biggest problem we have in the country is lack of engagement, not people who are too, um, you know, worked up over it. Those, you know, that's what Twitter's for. Most of the country is not paying attention and we need them to. Um so, so I have the 25-year-old, and then I have, through my second marriage, um, a five-year-old daughter and a three-and-a-half-year-old son. Um, and I, I, I have a very simple philosophy about this, which is why people have children. It's because you get to the point where um, you've, you've done a bunch of things. Maybe you've accomplished some things. Maybe you haven't, but it's like there has to be more than this. And then these little things come along and you realize, what was I doing for the last, you know, what did I do for the first 30 years of my life? And, uh, you know, and, you know, jobs are great and um, um, getting paid or being recognized. That's 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 great. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's, you know, that it's it's not real. It's not something that touches you personally. 
Um, and you know, it's like I, it's it's easy for me to go on and to you know. I mean, I was on CNN uh, about six or seven months ago, and they put me on with Ken Starr. And a two-minute segment turned into a 40-minute segment because we just, I just unloaded. And, you know, someone said, you know, weren't you intimidated? And I said, no, what intimidates me is my five-year-old uh-huh. uh, because she's smarter than me already. <laughs> and she knows exactly how to manipulate me. And it's, you know, it's, there's something much richer um, uh, uh, about that part of my life than all the rest of it, even though... You know, you do spend a whole lot of time doing on the rest of the stuff just because you need to and you have to or you enjoy it. Uh, but that, that's without a doubt. It's there's, there's number one on my list, and then there's a bunch of other things underneath it on right, the page. Right, exactly. Okay, Joe, number two. Um, <laughs> number two on my list is Maine, so I have to explain this a little bit. Um, uh, three or four, four years ago, uh, we bought a house in Maine. Um, and it's just worked out that my wife and I both have kind of crazy work situations where the first two summers uh, she was consulting so was able to spend the entire summer there. Last summer I was consulting. I spent the entire summer there. And it's become a kind of a mythic place for our family because we have this place, you know, that, you know, we, we always want to be at. You can't always be there. Um but it takes us out of the lives that we live in New York and the lives that we live in our jobs and in the political nonsense and the media and all of that um, and has just become. And I remember um, uh, my wife saying early on when we were looking, she said, I want, and it's why uh, I think that she thought Maine might be the place. She said, I want a place that when our kids are grown up, they can talk about that place when we were growing up. Nice. Okay, number three, you hinted at this before. Yeah, I, I, political passion. And um, maybe what I should have said, because the passion's already been there, so maybe more accurately it's political expression. You know, I worked um, uh, for almost 20 years doing campaigns, you know, five presidential campaigns. I loved it, but it's a young person's game. It's It's very hard on your life and your relationships and your, your, your body. Um, and it, there was a time to get out of it, which, which I did and, um, you know, went to work, you know, in business, uh, was lucky enough to then have a Democrat win. So I went in, I worked for Bill Clinton for four years and again, all great. But after that, I thought, you know, that part of my life is done and, uh, or at least I have, it's not going to be my life. And, you know, went and started a company and it was very successful and uh, I enjoyed it. But because I was over on the business side, I couldn't always, you know, jump into the political fray where I wanted to. Uh, And then, you know, that became even more exacerbated when I took the job at the NFL, uh, which in its own way was a really interesting challenge. Um, Fun is not the, again, fun is not the word I'd use (laughs) given what was going on, but challenging. And that's, that's all I'm really ever looking for or what all I thought I was looking for. And when I left the NFL, and there I had to be very careful about the politics because it was a very political organization uh, and wanted to stay out of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the day-to-day right. politics. Um, when I left the NFL, um, uh, CNN reached out and w- wanted to know if I wanted to do some commentary. And I was like, sure. 
And I started doing that, and I realized how much I missed it. And then I discovered Twitter. Um, and my wife is unhappy that I discovered Twitter, but I did. And that was a way to express yourself. And on a very small scale, try to persuade people. You know, it's, again, some days, you know, I've had, uh, I will tweet something and, you know, three people will like it. And I'll think, okay, three people like that. Okay. And then some days I'll do something and 50,000 people will. Because you've said something that has touched a nerve someplace mm -hmm. and has rippled out to a bunch of other people. Um, and I realized how much I missed that and how important it was for me to not only... Um, uh, be involved, but to make sure the right side won. That's cool. That's wonderful. Number four. Yeah, I think this is probably something that a lot of people say, but you are sustained by your friends. Um, and the way friends develops is very different depending on who you are. And I have multiple kinds of friends. Uh, I One of the things I love about you know, having children later in life and, you know, second go around is I have this whole new group of people who are generally 20 years younger than me who are school friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like there's something, you know, it's like this gift I got that I, you know, I wasn't expecting. Uh, and I love hanging around with them because... With your younger and, friends, and, and, yeah. And you, and you need, you know, you hang around with them because so much of your life is centered around your children as it should be and around their social settings. So, you know, every weekend it's, you know, it's it's a birthday party and I could go sit in the corner and, you know, not talk to anyone or I could engage. And, mm -hmm. it's, um, and then you have, you know, your lifelong friends. And, you know, it, you know, I, some people are really good at staying in touch. I'm not. So those sort of, a lot of them drift off, you know, over time. If I ever need anything, I, I can call these people at 3 o'clock in the morning and they'll turn their wife over. And, in fact, I have uh, uh -huh. uh, on occasion. And then there's, you know, the you could call them work friends, but they're still friends. You get thrown into, particularly with what I do, you get thrown into situations where you work long hours, you know, over three and four months, where in that time these people are good friends to you and you, you know who you can count on. And uh, well, two years later, you may have drifted away, but they're you know these these are these are people who sustain you through you know whether it's a life crisis, which is your old friends, whether it's how do I deal with these kids, which is the school friends, or at work with you know. And everywhere you go, you always find. And I switch jobs all the time, so it's it's I've got lots of different groups, but everywhere you go, you find four or five people who think like you or make you laugh or have the same values or think totally differently than you. And that's just amazing to you to, like, hear them talk or whatever. So Right. Yeah, I like that. Uh, number five. Yeah, number five. Um, I struggled with number five. Um, and as we all do. As, as I want you do. to know that. I didn't, I didn't struggle with, I mean, I could have come up with ten things. Right. But this, uh, this is a little bit like Maine. It's symbolic to me. And so my number five is cold beer. It's because of what I associate it with. It's I associate cold beer with being outside, mm -hmm. with you know watching a baseball game or playing golf or those times when you're you know it is a little magical where you're just engaged completely in what you're doing. I totally understand. It's, but it's got to be cold. I mean, if it's not, then it's just okay. And who wants to remember okay moments? And here are my five things for the week. Number one. Pete Buttigieg's speech about withdrawing from the presidential race. 
It was so eloquent, so presidential. And his husband, Chaston, whose moving introduction filled with such emotion seemed like the perfect first spouse or whatever I think we really will call him one day. Number two, cooking with ghee. Exhibit B, who may be lactose intolerant, I'll never tell, first told me she cooked with ghee, which is clarified butter, and it has much less lactose and a higher burning rate, and it's really good. Number three, The New Yorker. Okay, this is old news, but I read one issue almost cover to cover on a flight to Los Angeles and another one on the flight back. You never know what'll interest you. Sometimes it's the writing that draws you in. Number four, community in tough times. You know, my supermarket tends to have very aggressive shoppers, but Monday morning when I went there to stock up on coronavirus food and supplies, the place was packed. People were nice and helped each other. Could you get that for me? Can you lift that? Can you reach that shelf? Of course, they were picked apart, but it was still a nice feeling amongst us. And number five, youth. Not my waning youth, but spending time with college students now that my exhibits are beyond that age, which I did for an article. The kids were earnest and they were funny and they make me hopeful. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Joe Lockhart, former White House press secretary and host of Words Matter podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at joelockhart.com or at WMM underscore podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every review helps listeners find our show especially new ones, who we want. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresso Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wash your hands and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.